Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Business Leader Insights uh, brought to you today by our sponsor, Nightstone Capital. Uh, Business Leader is the UK's leading B2B media platform. We have a print magazine, live and virtual events network and a website updated daily with news and insights. For those of you who don't know about Business Leader, please do go and visit us at www.businessleader.co.uk. This live interview series that we're hosting weekly is seeing us bring you inspiring business figures. And for today's interview, we are speaking to entrepreneur, investor and tech supremo, Anthony Rose. So let us begin. Uh, welcome, Anthony. How are you today? Very well. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Yeah, thank you, Anthony, for your time today. I mean, it would be good just, just to give uh, our viewers uh, a start, but just you know, a brief background to your career. Sure. I started off when I was a kid at home designing electronics. I had a robot machine for making circuit boards in my uh, not bedroom because lead poisoning would have been bad uh, when I was still at school. Uh, that morphed into real-time 3D graphics. I ended up with Kazaa, the music file sharing company. I was living in Australia at the time. Uh, moved to the UK to head up BBC iPlayer. Uh, after the BBC, I, I built a startup, sold it, built a startup, sold it, invested in a few and then met my now business partner, Laurent Lafie, genius ex-VC and serial angel investor. And, uh, you know, in my forays of doing and selling startups, I sort of decided, uh, you know, after meeting Laurent that uh, we were getting tired of paying lawyers to do all the legals and it was time to change that. So created Seed Legals, uh, which is the fastest way to close your UK and now French funding round. You know, create employment agreements for your team. And basically, the idea is to be the operating system of your business for all its legal needs. Now, thank God. You just touched it there. But can you just briefly just give us a bit more detail on, on how you uh, began to work with the BBC and, and create its iPlayer? So the BBC had been noodling over iPlayer for years and uh, it was part of BBC's R&D. And, you know, it was fantastic that uh, broadcasters uh, historically have always been very focused on television is the future. Uh, and this Internet thing, it's cats on skateboards. It's going to be no one's going to it buffers. No one's interested, only children. And so the BBC were quite visionary and going, well, you know, there's going to be this Internet. This was quite a few years ago in 2003 or something, probably. And can we make some uh, media proposition? Um, but uh, they'd struggled for quite some time. I was living in Australia. I knew uh, Eric Huggers, who headed up then uh, from Microsoft, joined the BBC to head up its future media uh, division. And one day he called me and said, how would you like to join the BBC? And I went, the BBC? Where are the stock options? But I was persuaded. So I flew flew over and, uh, you know, Ashley Highfield uh, uh, gathered everyone together and said, please meet Anthony. Um, this is September 2007. And he's here to launch the iPlayer at Christmas with a multi-million pound uh, budget, uh, ad budget. Anthony, have fun. And, uh, and that was the uh, welcome. <laughs> so then it was uh, quite a challenge to get everything lined up, working, you know, consumer friendly and, and uh, you know, not take down the Internet. No, no, thanks, Anthony. And um, I mean, in your business career, you mentioned also the, the, the number of companies you've bought, sold, invested in, and you've become synonymous with kind of disruption. I mean, in, in your opinion, what, what makes a disruptive business? I can tell you perhaps what doesn't. So mm. I think what's interesting is that uh, when I see people looking to change the world, they're often fixated on being negative to some existing industry. You know, we don't like lawyers. We don't like 
broadcasts, you know, this needs to be democratized. And although that might be interesting as a, you know, the world would be better if this was different, it doesn't, unless it aligns with the user need, I think the company will be forever chasing an uphill battle, wanting you to trying to get users, maybe trying to get investment. So for me, it's actually not about disrupting uh, an existing industry. It's simply about identifying a consumer need, whether it be back in Kazar days, uh, can I, you know, watch a program on the internet? Can I download my music? Why do I have to buy everything packaged on a CD? Uh, back after the BBC, it was, you know, do I need to stay up and sit in front of this box on the at, in the lounge and only watch at nine o'clock and then interrupted by ads? And then I have to wait a week till the next one. Oh, it's madness. Why can't I watch wherever and whenever I want? So it's not about trying to take down some existing industry. In fact, often it's a partnership with the industry which will work out and be in the long term, but it's simply uh, the utility, you know. So in a sense, it's it's being a bit humble about, it's not like we're gonna change the world. It's like, no, I just want to find the fastest way for you to do your next legal agreement at 11 o'clock on a Sunday night at low cost uh, and empower you with knowledge and data to do that well. You know, how the rest of the world plays out afterwards, we'll work that out separately. Now, thank you, Anthony. So, some interesting uh, insight. Now, I just want to now just switch to, to, to funding. I mean, obviously, you know, we, we've been through a, a very tough uh, five months. In, in your opinion, have the fundamentals of what businesses need to be and do changed because of this period in, in regards to, to raising funds? I think people often have a, you know, short sight and, you know, the world of funding, like many other things, is, uh, you know, swings like a pendulum. And uh, we've had previous booms and crashes. There's nothing to suggest this is a crash. But, you know, on Seed Legals, we have a lot of funding rounds happening. So we've got the advantage of data. So what we saw is come April, there was a substantial drop in funding rounds. And there was also a drop in uh, SEIS advance assurance. So for those who don't know what that is, SEIS is a tax advantage that UK investors get if they invest personally in a business. It's amazing. You get a 50% write-off on your uh, investment um, and pay no tax if you keep the shares for three years and so on. Um, but companies apply before a round. So it's a, it's a leading indicator and we do a, a good fraction of all of these on seed legals. So we saw at least a 50% drop in those. Uh, and then the question was how long this would last for. I mean, it turned out it lasted for about uh, 45 days or so. And it's now not quite, but substantially back at uh, pre-COVID levels. So when I read about, um, you know, investments going to be down for ages and so on, I first saw the data didn't show that. But then realized and saw some tweets from Silicon Valley, which I think indicate that the reason it will bounce back fairly quickly, which is the um, most COVID proof and perhaps uh, the most resilient and the smartest founders are raising now anyway, because they've got the fundamentals, as you say, are, are right, they've got a great business. And that means the smartest investors who want to be part of the, the best businesses have to be investing, otherwise they're just going to lose out. So the fear of missing out, the FOMO, is I think causing the best businesses and the best investors to raise uh, investment, and then the rest will follow. 
Uh, thank you, Andy. So, some 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 positive uh, news. There. And I just want to talk about the yeah, the, you know, the, the the concept. Obviously, some businesses at some stage need need to raise funds. But what, where where is the line between uh, actually finding product market fit and and growing your business that way, and just kind of raising for kind of uh, a raise, you know, uh, a funding sake? If 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 I understand what I mean. Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think we've all, you know, read TechCrunch and we've been smitten by the stories of Silicon Valley of people raising millions on an idea. And I think that might be the risk profile of US investors. Uh, it's basically, you know, go big or go bust. Yes, if you scale this fast enough and own all the cities for your thing in the world, you'll own the world and it, and it will be a unicorn and beyond. So we need to invest. But the UK is quite different and investors in the UK don't want to see a bottomless pit for their money. They'd like to see a revenue model that shows that the company will be cash flow positive or at least the path to profitability after, if not the first, but the second round. So I think in the UK, you see um, a lot fewer uh, propositions that don't have a business model that are just an endless sink of money. A la, you know, WeWork maybe or Uber, um, and more something that says, you know, we'll need some capex to get this uh, built, but then we'll have a revenue stream. Of course, this does make it difficult for things that don't have a ready business model that might be a go big or go bust social network. But it's important if you want to raise investments in the UK, and I would put it, uh, you know, the UK is partway between the rest of Europe and, and the US, uh, the rest of Europe will be even more conservative, then uh, you really are uh, well put to create a business plan that shows revenue and shows, uh, and now I think is a tricky balance, because if you show you're getting profitable too soon, there won't be another funding round. There's nothing in it for the investor. For you, it's a great business. If you show an endless pot of money that you is going to be sunk into your business and endless fundraisers, the investor sees endless dilution. So somewhere in between, and that to me, I think means maybe a pitch deck that is firmly divided into, uh, this is our modest plan that sees us get to profitability. And uh, that's plan A. But if things go well, actually our vision is all of these things, but we're only going to start using your money, you know, when we've got plan A delivered. Thank you. And, and so do you, do you feel that there is more of an emphasis now on, like you say, you know, looking at the market, looking at what the customer wants, as opposed to just creating amazing and very clever technology? Yeah, well, you know, there, there are many different uh, investor profiles and many different founder profiles and different investors are looking for different things. You know, Google Ventures has got an, you know, AI focus and others have got, you know, food or med tech focus. So there's there is always a spectrum. But I think in general, you'll find it uh, easier to get investment for, you know, a SaaS fintech product that is likely to be generating investment. Uh, for some of the others, there's always crowdfunding. Um, and, you know, there are always other investors with a longer term view or bigger pockets or a different risk profile. Just want to move on now to obviously you've mentioned, you know, you, you've exited um, several businesses. Just want to talk about, you know, does that get easier over time or is it or does it remain as, as, as stressful each time? I think uh, you know, one of the things when people see on LinkedIn, I've uh, you know sold a couple of businesses. The first uh, question is, so how long till you sell this business? But actually, I think uh, we, you know when you start a business, and I sometimes see on pitch decks because we get a lot of pitch decks at uh, C Legals, um, the pitch deck 
uh, might show an exit or planned exit after a couple of years. But I think that's a bad thing. I don't think you should start a business, and certainly I don't, with a view to an exit. Um, instead, your, your goal is always to grow an amazing, vibrant business team uh, you know, and, and deliver that mission. But, of course, things change. And so as a founder, I think on a you know, maybe at least monthly basis, um, you know, if you're familiar with the old style DOS prompt of abort, retry, ignore, uh, you should be going through your head, you know, what do I do? I either become profitable and don't need to raise, or I need to raise, or I need to sell, or I need to shut the business. Those are kind of your possibilities. So in the uh, pre-revenue days, when you're building things, you've usually raised some money and you've got it in the bank. And now you've built something and now you're trying to find, you know, consumers, users, customers, to the point that the business can be self-sustaining. But until that point, you're playing through all of these and now, you know, if opportunistically an exit arrives, that might be the best thing to do at the time. So the short story is I don't think you uh, should aim for that as a goal. And the reason why not to is that you might, if you aim for an exit as a goal, you might optimize for the wrong things. You may optimize for a great deal of hype so that you hope to get acquired at a high valuation you might make promises to your investors of an exit, but if those offers don't arrive, then you're stuck with having to create a profit business. And if you didn't optimize for that and you didn't have cash in the bank to do that, then you're really in a bad place. So uh, yes, despite a couple of uh, you know exits, uh, the goal is in fact really to grow a vibrant business. And you mentioned you, you now have a co-founder. Uh, in your business, I mean, do you, what 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 do you kind of look for, and what people what should people look for in a co-founder? You know, uh, you know, considering that business journey. So that is a great question. So the first thing on seed legals, we've got lots of data. We see that companies mostly have two founders, uh, sometimes one and sometimes three, and then exceptionally more than three. I think more than three starts becoming a bit of a red flag for investors. Uh, but two is you know the most common, and. I think the reason why, well, there are a couple of reasons. One is there's only so much time in the day. You can't wear everything on your shoulders. You also need a confidant. But I think also from what I've seen and when I look within, a bit of introspection as the founder is good, I think there are three roles needed uh, in a business. The first one is the domain expert, somebody who understands the consumer, the market. Maybe it was their idea. They've got this burning passion for you know, whatever it is food, medicine, whatever it is. The next person is the person that's going to help deliver it. So that's usually the product delivery CTO kind of role. And the next role is the Mr. or Ms. Money. The person is going to help get it funded, make sure it has revenues, run as a proper business, which maps maybe to the CFO or COO role. So when you look at yourself, you might try and figure out which one or more of these roles are you and then find a business partner who compliments you. So I'm very much the tech product guy. Uh, my business partner, Laurent, is the genius XVC and serial angel investor. And we've both been around enough that we can handle you know, the, uh, the investment side and the operational side. But in many ways, we see complementary pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. So I'm very much sort of front office, he's back office. I'm arm waving, he's doing the spreadsheets. So uh, so that works very well. So I think, you know, once you understand the complementary piece and the roles, 
then, of course, you're left with a very non-trivial problem of actually finding the partner because there's no formula I've ever seen other than randomly meeting people and getting them inspired. Thank you, Anthony. And I uh, just want to move on now to talk about the, the, the tech sector of, of which you've played uh, a really influential role. I mean, what, what, is, what is exciting you in this sector at the moment? I know you, you're concentrating on seed legals, but what, what kind of what things are growing? What, what's interesting? That is a really interesting question. So, you know, I'm privileged to see an endless number of pitch decks and companies on seed legals. And I'm, you know, delighted by human ingenuity. Uh, they're, they're amazing things. You know, you'd uh, get a deck for about a an AI-powered drone for crop uh, optimization, and the next thing will be a shoe with a camera in it for blind people. You know, it's amazing. Um, I think one of the things you learn quickly is that ideas are cheap and implementation is expensive. So I think one of the really interesting things is, you know, as an investor, how do you decide what to invest in? Because you see all these pitch decks and you've actually got no idea up front what's good and what's not good. And for me, that then means that if you're looking to get investment, uh, I think investors, since there is no clear formula to go, this will, it's all about placing bets. And therefore, I think you want to give all the good signals to differentiate from the noise of everything else, which means making noise in the press, getting articles, you know, writing uh, you know, presidential articles, that's now a bad word, but presidential articles, <laughs> thought leadership pieces, and so on, so that people see the team and the business as uh, punching above its weight, as sticking out amongst others, and therefore, as they do a Google search and so on, or friends keep telling them about some business, your name comes up, and that is like, oh, that's something we should bet on. But otherwise, I think the real challenge is at a pitch deck stage, showing investability. But to get back to your question, are there any particular sectors? Um, I think, you know, people usually expect it's going to be fintech and so on. But actually, some of the interesting sectors are food tech um, and not surprisingly right now, med tech. But there are a wide range of things. And I don't think that I, I don't think I see any particular one jumping out. And I'm not really sure about that categorization anyway. You know, it's sometimes a bit narrow and you know, creates mm. roles which shouldn't be there. Is it, is it, yeah, thanks, Andy. It's interesting you just mentioned the role of kind of marketing and in, in PR and in, in making sure you, you kind of stand out as a business. Do, do you have any, I mean, with so much noise and, and so many companies looking to do that, do, do you have any kind of insight into, into, into what, what makes good kind of, you know, uh, authentic kind of PR and marketing? I think, well, it depends on your business, but I think mm. I think showing people that you know what you're talking about, that you have potentially some public mission as uh, in addition to your commercial mission. So seeing leadership pieces on, you know, something about your sector, something about the technology use, maybe, you know, if not open sourcing, because that's a sidetrack on its own, but people reading it thinking that you are uh, ahead of others in your thinking. Um, that you have a nice big vision, uh, but you're executing here. Um, and then simply seeing, I think, column inches, so Google search. If, if a Google search for your company, you know, uh, shows nothing uh, or shows competitors because your name is one that's too similar to theirs, then it's kind of like you don't exist. But if you start appearing in your investors' LinkedIn feeds and, you know, you follow them on Twitter and they follow you and they start seeing your posts, suddenly you're, you know, you're omnipresent. 
And then your goal is for people to think that you're a larger company than you really are uh, until you can get there, right? So maybe it's the, the old uh, you know, investment or startup saying, fake it till you make it. Can you appear to be bigger and, and get people to bet on you? And then, of course, you have to deliver on that. Thank you. I just want to end um, my, my questions. Obviously, it's, it's been a difficult five months for, for anyone in business. I mean, what, what advice would you give um, to kind of business leaders and, and our viewers during this difficult time? Well, I think the interesting one uh, for me is that, you know, I'm kind of a tech product guy. So I end up now, you know, being CEO, but, you know, my heart is not about the existential things in life. It's about building and shipping stuff. And then along comes a pandemic. And suddenly, you know, if you're a leader and people are looking up to you as a leader, you don't have an option but to be a leader in that space. So, you know, I have to have a view as to, you know, the safety of your team, when you should reopen, should you work from home? Um, and so I think what's quite interesting, at least personally, is that, uh, when unexpected things come up, how you adapt and how your team adapt and how people look up to you or not, depending on what you do. And I mean, you see this very clearly, of course, in the US president, but looking closer to home, um, you know, some businesses uh, are in the fortunate position if they're a SaaS business, if they're online, fintech, they may be marginally affected or even positively affected. Others, if you're a gym, you know, life is going to be tough. So, you know, the things to do are one, you know, it's about your team, about safety, about everyone being motivated and business continuing. Number two, it's about being opportunistic and taking advantage of changing times. So it's illegals. Uh, we realized many people were going to get furloughed. So we created a furlough policy for free and several thousand companies and many thousands of people use the product. I mean, I don't think furloughing is a sort of success, but to the extent that it helped those businesses, we're delighted to do it. And we had a 4x increase in traffic. We didn't make revenue. It wasn't our goal from that. But in a sense, it was, you know, opportunistically being there for something uh, and have now created a set of new products around employment and other things that we hope will be there for the things that people now need. So if you can be opportunistic and also if your investors can see that you're being opt opportunistic. And my favorite example is a company actually see Legal's customer called Charged Up and Charged Up have mobile phone charging stations. And of course, with people, at least for a few months, not anywhere, that business just didn't happen. So they reinvented themselves in their mobile kiosks as uh, home, as sanitizer dispensing stations. And, uh, and I think they're everywhere. So I think that's a sort of genius lateral thinking. And maybe at some point, they'll now have all these uh, stations in thousands of buildings, offices, supermarkets, which will then turn into their original product. So, you know, as a leader, you now have um, opportunity thrust on you and you're either going to do something with it or not, because failure to make decisions, I think as a founder is fatal. Yeah, thank you. I think a great example of uh, innovation there from from uh, Charged Up. Those, those were the questions uh, from myself, Anthony. Um, we're just going to have some. We've had some come through uh, from our, our viewers. Um, yeah, we've had one in. What was your biggest challenge when setting up uh, the iPlayer or, or creating the iPlayer? 
Um, that's a fabulous uh, question. So um, I had, as I said, the BBC had been, uh, you know, working on iPlayer for a while, but it was not a great consumer-friendly proposition. And when I uh, was uh, moved over from Australia, I was thinking, you know, having played with it, what was I to do? And my first uh, assumption before I arrived in uh, London was that, you know, the tech team were terrible and I had to fire everyone and start again. And when I arrived, I discovered the tech team were actually brilliant. Uh, the problem was, as a large company, they were being pulled in many different directions. And they were the BBC was trying to optimize for the editorial team, the moderation team, the cost of distribution, um, you know, the TV channels themselves and having prominence rather than an integrated interface. And so I realized actually that what it really needed was a consumer champion. And so my, my challenge then was to have the team stop talking to the rest of the business and <laughs> act as if they're in a sandbox and essentially create a startup within the larger company to go back to sort of original thinking, which is pick what does the consumer want and just focus on that. And then I would have to try and deal with the rest of the business, I think was thing one and thing two, which is a fun story, which is um, about uh, being customer focused, which is what I try to now do in my businesses. The entire business is run around the customer. So when I was busy testing iPlayer, I, I'd come up with like a hundred things that didn't work. And as I went to the tech team, they kept telling me, oh, dude, that's just you. You've got a Windows computer. That's just that program. Oh, it's your setup. You know, it's your drivers. And I, I you know, it's only 1% of people. And I thought, well, it's true. But, you know, with a hundred things, this means most people, it's not going to work. And it was really hard to persuade the team that this was a problem. So I decided I need to do some product testing. So I went to the people in the company that do product testing and I said, I need to do testing. And they went, oh yeah, that'll cost 20,000 pounds and take six weeks. And I went, I don't have six weeks and for sure I'm not paying 20,000 pounds. So I developed the patented Anthony chocolate test. So I went to the Tesco around the corner and bought a few boxes of big lint, a big box of lint chocolate. And then I found a non-tech person in the legal team upstairs. And I said, I will give you this fine box of chocolates if you come and test our products. And the person came by and uh, tested and went and I said, what's your favorite program? Find it. And the first test was an absolute disaster. Nothing worked. Um, and the team were completely crestfallen, but understood the problem. And I said, okay, great. What we're gonna do is we're gonna do we're going to pick the five most critical things. We're going to sort these in the next 48 hours. And we're going to keep repeating this until, you know, we have a proposition that the person can watch the show they wanted. And it, I think, took about four sessions until the person said, I like EastEnders. Oh, there's EastEnders. Oh, it works. Awesome. So, so that is kind of the, uh, you know, story in a nutshell. No, thank you. It's hard to say no to lint chocolate, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, good, good, good tip there. Um, we've had, yeah, a question come in from uh, Millie Braun. Um, what is uh, some advice, especially for startups uh, who might be struggling to get investment interest at this time? Oh, um, I wish I knew the answer to that. I think so. If people are not investing, um, I mean, there may be multiple reasons, of course. One of them is. Uh, you haven't developed the idea enough so people can understand that it's investable. Because when you're investing early stage, you're placing a big bet. And, uh, you know, I think we see on Seed Legals that founders put a median of £26,000 of their own money into the product. Why? Because I don't think 
anyone invests on a PowerPoint. Ideas are cheap, implementation is expensive. So you have to build something so people know they can, you know, touch it, they can play with it, you know, they can see that you can build it and get to the next step. I think so. So key reasons people are not investing might be one, they simply don't believe in the idea. Two, they don't believe that you can carry off the idea. Three, they don't see a business model behind it. Uh, four, they don't know that you can put a team together. Five, that you just haven't presented it in a way that is compelling. Maybe in your mind, you've got this amazing vision, but the pitch deck is a bit all over the show. So um, I'm actually working on a pitch deck clinic series. So um, if you drop me an email, I will send you details that may be live next week. And what I do is I go through, and probably I've got about eight of them so far, analyzing slide by slide a range of pitch decks to see if the right messages are coming out and so on. And maybe the pitch deck, you know, is the way. I'll, I'll end that question with one more thought, which is, you know, once upon a time, you would build it and they would come. So you'd make a a big bet that you know people were going to use your widget you'd raise money build it but then it turns out people just didn't arrive so now what you do is you make a prototype and test that before you build it but i think there's even a next step which is you pretend you've built it you write a press release and if nobody writes up the press release don't bother doing anything else but if you can get press attention as if you'd built it then you can go on and actually build that and of course it's being slightly facetious, but uh, but you might even try it with friends. So write up like there was a press release for this, and if everyone goes, you know, so what? Then don't bother with the next steps or keep refining it until they go, oh wow, I really want one of those. Thank you, Antia. So, um, some really good advice. Got a question here from uh, Stephen uh, Chan. He said, Antia, great advice. What, um, what advice would you give to someone who's considering moving into the world of entrepreneurship and, and how would you keep yourself motivated through difficult times? So two questions there. I think the first is the attribute of an entrepreneur. Mm. I think uh, that's probably never listening to what other people tell you and being unemployable otherwise. Um, but uh, jokes aside, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's loving uh, a challenge and it's loving to take an idea and turn it, turning it into a reality. And often having a particular passion that's uh, burning that you want to solve. Sometimes it's not, it's yours. And sometimes if you're a co-founder, it's one that you've sort of bought into from somebody else. Um, I think you need to love making decisions and you love a, uh, an attitude that, you know, nothing is a problem. Everything's an opportunity for better or for worse. Um, what keeps you motivated? Well, I think that that is one of the real uh, difficulties because if things are going well uh, business is up you look at your graphs every day you go this is awesome uh, that's amazing but of course it doesn't necessarily need to be that you have team issues you know before products launch before you've got revenue you've got this gap where you've raised money and it's now slowly going down but you don't have revenue and you have to raise again i don't have kids but you know maybe it's a bit like having kids which is as a founder is analogous to the parent. You can't go after two years, I'm bored, can I give it back? So one of the key things as a founder is you have to, um, unless it really can't work out, you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders, hence a confidant and co-founder is good, to make, to do whatever you can to make it a success. And I guess the, the motivational thing is the key thing that got you into wanting to do it in the first place. You want to see, can you deliver this vision? If you can't, then 
can you pivot into something else? Can it be B2B instead of B2C? Maybe an, uh, an opportunity to sell a business arrives. Maybe, you know, there's an acquire. There are any number of things. But I think the maybe the ultimately the driver is you've got people who followed you into this business. They're not working somewhere else. They've bought into the vision. They've joined your team. I think when you wake up, you see that responsibility to them. And that's one of the drivers as well. Uh, thank you, uh, Anthony. Thanks for, for the question. I've had one. It's, it's an anonymous one. But what is the best uh, advice you've ever received? And that's, that's a big question, Anthony. <laughs> um, I, I mean, at short notice, I totally don't know the answer to that. But, but, the, but the one I think is, is quite fun is, uh, you know, don't do anything you'd be embarrassed to tell your mother about. And so, you know, maybe it's kind of the ethic choices when you make when you run your business, you know, do you pivot your business Do you know, sort of do no evil but you've got endless numbers of choices that you have to make as a founder you know maybe we should increase prices maybe we should do this maybe we should sell people's data you know whatever it might be um and then maybe a maxim is if you wouldn't tell your mother about it it's probably not a good thing to do <laughs> so, so there's a slightly random answer to that fun question Thank you. Those were our questions uh, from the audience, Anthony. I just want to say thank you again for your time today. I mean, do you have any final uh, thoughts uh, that, that you'd like to share with us? Um, well, firstly, thank you for uh, great questions from you and, and from uh, the people who posed the questions. It was a lot of fun. Um, I think maybe my thought right now is, you know, uh, I think procrastination is not a wise choice. So I see, you know, whether it be investors or founders going, well, we'll wait till things return to normal again until we do X, till we raise money, hire people, whatever. Um, but I think, you know, as a founder, procrastination is really a good thing. It just means everything is on hold. Now, in some cases, if your business, you know, requires people to be in public spaces or enclosed spaces or whatever, that's challenging. But, you, you know, while everyone else is sitting around wondering what to do this could be the ideal point to you know move ahead it's certainly you know with a buyer's market for hiring people at the moment it's been impossible to hire tech talent in london that's changing rapidly or has changed already so if you are able to hire people you know get a product out sooner take advantage of uncertain times I, I would say that is the way. So don't wait is uh, is the short uh, two word advice.